Well, good morning, Redeemer. It's great to be with you today. Uh, obviously not in person, uh, but hopefully at some point in the future, we'll actually be able to get in the same room together. My name's Pete, as has probably already been said. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church in North Manchester, uh, and it is great to serve you today from Ruth chapter 3 as we open uh, the, God's Word together. So why don't I just pray for us uh, before we do that and ask God to help us in our time now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, you speak to us through it. And Lord, I pray now that as we, as we open this word together, wherever we are, whatever we find ourselves doing, I just pray that you would help us to stop and to listen. Spirit of God, we ask for your help in that regard so that we would engage with the message in these verses so that we would know how you would have us live, Lord. And more than that, that we would see the glory of the Lord Jesus. So Spirit of God, please come and do these things now amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to kick off by telling you the story of how I first met my wife. Uh, I was 19 years old. I just arrived at Cardiff University. Uh, and we were both in the, uh, our first year of university together. Uh, a friend invited me to come along to a Christian Union small group. Uh, and so I went along kind of kind of bored. I wasn't in a great place with Jesus at that time. I, I wasn't really walking very closely with him, but it was something to do. And uh, I liked uh, I liked my mate. So I was going to hang out with him. And I arrived at, uh, at this small group in this little ramshackle student house somewhere in the middle of Cardiff. And that was when I met my wife. And I would love to tell you in that moment that everything slowed down and our, our gaze locked across a crowded room. Krista Berg was playing in the background, the lady in red. But none of that. Uh, essentially what happened is she ignored me. She ignored me the entire night. And she told me later on um, that she looked at me and she saw the skinhead and she saw the ear piercing that I used to have, which I still wish I had. And it, it's really, it was really cool. And I would get it back again if she uh, wasn't so against it. But uh, she looked at me and she thought, he looks like an idiot. I'm not going anywhere near him at all. Um, which frankly, uh, I said to her, you know, you don't have to be quite so honest with your feedback. You could just uh, rein it in slightly. Um, but that was how, where we first met. Not the most spectacular uh, story at all. We actually got together uh, several months later when we met at a social event. And uh, uh, as often happens in university, everyone else around us was drinking. Uh, neither of us uh, drink alcohol. And so we were just bored. We got talking. We exchanged MSN uh, contact information. Some of you are probably not old enough to even know what MSN is, but that's how long ago in the deep dark past this this incident took place. And anyway, we've been married uh, 10 years now. Uh, we have two lovely little boys uh, and I'm constantly amazed and very, very thankful that I've, uh, I, I have the privilege of being her husband. She is a really wonderful uh, wife to me. We love to tell stories uh, on here stories of how people first got together don't we uh, we love to celebrate love in our culture you turn on the radio and uh, every song is about the quest to find true love you turn on tv and you you watch love island or uh, married at first sight 
Our social media feeds are, are filled with pictures of people hanging out with their loved ones and uh, it, you know, telling the stories of what they've been up to. Uh, but none of us, no matter what your particular story, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're dating or if you're, if you're married to someone you're watching today, uh, none of us have a story of, of when we got together with our husband or our wife that is as weird as the one that we just had read for us in Ruth chapter three. Uh, it is an absolutely crazy story. I'm sure I'm not the only person who, as it was being read a few moments ago, thought, this is nuts. Basically, uh, a girl sneaks up on a guy in the middle of the night, uh, scares him half to death, and then tells, tells him to put his duvet over her, at which point he goes, don't worry, I'll buy you. And then in the morning, he gives her a load of barley. And that's basically what happens. Now, that, I don't, maybe you're new to church right now. Uh, you haven't been attending for any length of time. You're wondering, like, is this, is this how Christians do this? Is, is, this, is this how every uh, story um, uh, uh, of Christians getting together uh, starts out? Um, well, interestingly, Greg told me that that is how uh, he got together with his wife. Um, but, and you can talk to him about that at another time. But actually, for most of us, no, that's not what is going on here. And, and really, if that's what we take away from this day, then I have massively failed. What's happening here in Ruth 3 is narrative. Uh, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, uh, it's telling us what happened. It's not telling us what we should do. Hopefully, what we'll find together today as we dig into Ruth 3 is something far more profound Hopefully something far more helpful for us as we live in 21st century Manchester. Because although this story seems crazy, um, it, is, it is foreign to our experience. It's bound up uh, in culture and a time that is utterly removed from our everyday lived experience. The truths it contains are, uh, show us what true love is like and where we can find it. So let's get into the story. And uh, though I'm in danger of stating the obvious, given that it's such an odd story, I think it's worth stating the obvious. Uh, what I want us first to see together today is that Ruth chapter three is a love story. It's a love story. If you boil the book of Ruth down to its bare essence, it's a, it's a story about a girl, Ruth, who meets a guy, Boaz, and they fall in love, they get married, and they have a kid. And if, like me, you haven't been with us over the past two weeks, if you, you've missed the context of chapter three that helps make sense of what is happening here. What we've got to appreciate today as we come to this passage about Ruth is that she is in a difficult situation. She is not really a catch. Even though she's young, she's a widower. She's been married already to a guy who died and now she lives with her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. And in those days, being widowed basically meant that you were destitute. Women didn't have the opportunity to earn money. Uh, there was no welfare system to provide for them. So Ruth is not only coming out of a previous relationship and no doubt working through grief and bereavement and all of the complications that come along with that, but she's also completely broke. And look, uh, there's, there's nowhere in the book that explicitly says this, but it's likely that she wasn't particularly attractive either. 
Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't, but the fact that the book, book omits to comment on it makes me think that she wasn't blessed with Hollywood A-lister looks, which is just another reason uh, why guys may be less likely to pursue a broke girl with a messy, bra with me a messy background. And then, of course, there was the biggest problem for Ruth. She was a Moabite. In those days, the people of Israel were a very closed community. God had commanded them not to marry with the peoples around them in order to prevent them from worshipping the gods of the other nations. And the Moabites, as far as Israel were concerned, were the worst of the lot. They hated those guys. And that is where Ruth is from. And so there's tension in this love story because Ruth needs a husband. Not just because she's lonely and she wants to find love, but because she needs someone to provide for her and her family. This isn't just about love. This is about potentially life and death. And so we see in chapter two that she meets Boaz whilst she's out scavenging in the fields for something to eat. He owns the field and it's immediately clear when he, when he turns up, he is godly. He is wealthy and he's kind. He notices Ruth and he orders his men to provide for her and protect her. Uh, she's allowed to work in the fields. He invites her to eat with them uh, and he recognises that she's taken good care of her mother-in-law. And he blesses her in verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He prays for her. This godly, wealthy, kind guy. And if you're not sure what you're supposed to think about Boaz as the narrative of chapter two unfolds, well, we have Naomi, uh, the, the mother-in-law. She, she turns up and she's like, oh, you met Boaz. He is so nice. I imagine this is how girls talk about guys together. Oh, Boaz, he is dreamy. He's a darling. He's wonderful. And she drops into the conversation there in verse 20. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now, in those days, there was a provision in God's law that stated that a man was obliged to marry the destitute widow of his deceased relative in order to provide for her if she didn't have any children. He would buy or redeem the, the dead man's land and provide for his wife and the extended family. So Naomi is, is saying to Ruth right now, make sure you get his MSN address, right? You're in with a good shout here. Not only is he kind and wealthy and godly, he is a guardian redeemer. He is obligated to some degree or other to get involved, to protect you, to stand in and, uh, and provide for you. But then what happens? Well, Boaz never calls. Ruth works the fields throughout the harvest and she keeps on being like, oh, hey, Boaz, how's it going? Uh, yeah, I'm good. Nice to see you. But he never seems to seal the deal. And time is going on and the harvesting finishes and it seems like the chance is slipping away. Ruth is just a temporary worker, right? She's just there for the harvest. And the opportunity for her to connect with Boaz is rapidly closing that window of opportunity. And so 
We come to our passage today and it begins with Ruth and Naomi taking a huge risk. A huge risk. And again, it's just important to say right now that this isn't advice here, it is narrative. This is not a recommended course of action for how to get a husband or wife. Because Naomi realizes that this window of opportunity is closing and like every good mother-in-law, she sticks her nose in to someone else's business. And so she comes up with this plan. Boaz is gonna be sleeping that night at the threshing floor where they're processing the harvest. And Naomi tells Ruth there in verse three, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Pluck those eyebrows, do those nails, put on your high heels. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place that he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Now, what? This is a mental plan. Sneak up to a man you barely know in the middle of the night as he's sleeping, lie down and do whatever he tells you. This is not advice that anyone would give to their own daughter. Because what do you honestly expect will come out of that man's mouth? Really, there seems two likely outcomes to this plan. First, sexual immorality. You get into bed with a guy in the middle of the night, it's highly likely that something is going to happen that displeases God. Sex is great. It's a good gift given to us by our Creator and Heavenly Father. But it's given to us to enjoy in the context of marriage, within a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And if Boaz is not as righteous as he seems, then this situation is gonna end in sin. It's a big risk. But that's not the only risk, because second, there is also the risk that Boaz is indeed righteous as he seems, and Ruth's actions are misunderstood. In the book of Hosea, chapter nine, verse one, God condemns the people of Israel, saying, you love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Women in those days would come to the threshing floor to sleep with the laborers for money, particularly destitute women who had no other way of earning a, a, a living wage. And this would definitely have been an easy thing for Boaz to have understood in terms of what Ruth was doing. And he could quite easily, in that moment, as a righteous man, have rejected Ruth. She was a Moabite. Most people would have thought of her as ungodly anyway. And her actions could well have confirmed Boaz's suspicions and destroyed any thought that he may have had that he should marry her. So it is a crazy, risky plan that Naomi proposes. And even crazier, Ruth in verse five says, I will do whatever you say. So she does it. She, she follows the plan to the letter. And in the middle of the night, Boaz is startled awake. This is the moment. What will happen? What will Boaz do? In verse nine, he says, who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. 
spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, before we, we move on, we just need to get straight in our minds what she is asking him here. Because this, this kind of looks like a request for sex, doesn't it? To get into bed with him. Such a request can clearly be interpreted in that way. But we need to remember, when we read the Bible, context is everything. Remember back uh, in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz has said to Ruth, uh, May God bless you as you take refuge under his wings. That phrase, under his wings, is the same phrase, identical phrase in the original language that the the NIV translates, the corner of your garment. So you could say Boaz says, may God bless you as you take refuge under the corner of his garment. And what Ruth is doing in this moment is she is repeating Boaz's words back to him. She says, Boaz, you prayed that I would find refuge under the wings of God will now be the answer to your own prayer. Shelter me under your wings. Make me your wife. That's what she's doing. She's proposing marriage to him. Now let's think about this for a moment. Ruth is vulnerable. Boaz and Ruth are clearly attracted to one another to some degree. It's nighttime, and she's doing something that could easily be interpreted as sexually suggestive. I suggest to you that in our culture, and frankly in basically any other, in basically every culture anywhere at any time, two things would usually happen in this situation. Either he takes advantage of her, or he rejects her. We see this all the time. We see this, uh, so we see men taking advantage of, of vulnerable women in sickening situations where we see murder, rape, all kinds of awful things happening. But actually, it's usually not that extreme. These kind of abusive situations happen when we view pornography. It happens when a guy sleeps with a girl he met on Tinder. It happens when two people are dating and then one of them just ghosts the other and never speaks to them again. It happens when two people who aren't married consensually have sex, but they're taking from one another what is not theirs to take. All of it is sin. All dishonors God. All of it, to one degree or another, is abusive. But on the flip side, often in situations where women are vulnerable and maybe sexually suggestive, the moral moral person, the righteous person, looks down upon that, that woman and rejects her. How often are women slut shamed, treated as objects of immorality by a self-righteous society that shames them for their vulnerability? How often does a husband angrily point out his wife's flaws, reminding her that she is not 
good enough for him. And think with me, how easy would it have been for Boaz in a moment of righteous indignation to interpret her actions as promiscuous, immoral, and shout out and wake up those who are sleeping nearby and destroy Ruth's reputation for good. The former response leads to sexual sin. The latter response leads to self-righteous sin. And both are so prevalent today in our society in both overt and subtle ways. And neither shows us that true love that we are so desperately looking for and longing for. So what does Boaz do? Does he abuse her? Does he reject her? No. He loves her. He loves her. This is what true love looks like. This is what we all long for. We long to be real. We long to be authentic. We long to be transparent. We long, we long to be known, truly known, warts and all, with all our frailties and failures. And in that moment, to be met with true love. And Boaz gives us a snapshot here of what true love really looks like. Here's five things really quickly. One, love is holy. How does he respond to her request in verse 10? He prays for her. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. What's one of the best ways to stop yourself from sinning in that moment? In a moment of temptation, in a moment where you could easily take the wrong step. Pray. That's the kind of man Boaz was. He honours her in that moment because he honours God. He puts God first, not himself, not maybe his own uh, desire for sexual intimacy, not his own concern for his own reputation and what people may think of what is happening right there on the threshing floor. The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, love is holy. That is his first response towards Ruth. Secondly, love sees the best in us. As we've already said, Ruth is destitute. She's poor. She's so desperate that she's had to come to Boaz with a crazy plan. But he looks at her and he thinks she's magnificent. He says, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier when you moved here to look after Naomi, your mother-in-law. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz is clearly a, a little older, and he's, and he's stunned that Ruth has come to him. Wow. He doesn't see the worst in her in that moment. He sees the best in her, in her motivation, in her actions, in her heart. That's what love does. Love sees the best in us. Love desires us even when most others would consider us to be undesirable. Thirdly, love acts decisively. You see, there is a twist in this love story, as there so often is, because there is another man. Ruth doesn't realise it, but by law, someone else gets first refusal of her hand in marriage. I mean, that must have been a bit of a shock for her in the middle of the night there at the threshing floor. But instead of, her let it, instead of letting her worry about it, Boaz is clear that he's going to take care of it. He's a man of action. 
He's not going to leave her hanging. He says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he, the other, the other man, wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Love acts decisively. It takes care of the one whom you love. Fourthly, love protects. Leading on from that last point, Boaz, he's concerned for Ruth's safety. It's night, it's dark. They're they're a long way outside of town on the threshing floor. And so for her to walk back at this point in the night to Naomi would be dangerous. She could easily get into trouble with robbers or who knows what else. And so he tells her, look, lie here until morning. Stay, Stay with me. I will protect you. But he's not just concerned about her physical protection. He's also concerned for her reputation. And so, wisely, before the sun rises, he, uh, he sends her on her way. He doesn't want uh, what has happened to be misinterpreted by others. Love is always concerned to protect the one whom we love. And then fifthly, love provides. See, before Ruth leaves, Boaz fills up her backpack with as much barley as she could carry. When you love someone, you bless them. You provide for their needs. It's easy to say, I love you. It's much harder to show it. And she's hungry, so he takes care of her, and also of Naomi, whom Ruth loves too. Here's the thing. That love is a love that you can trust. So Naomi returns from a midnight adventure, sorry, Ruth returns from a midnight adventure and tells Naomi that all that's gone on, and Naomi replies to her, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is what true love looks like. It's a love you can trust. You can wait. You can rest knowing that such a love will take care of you. But you know, as we, as we come to the end of our time today... There's a problem, isn't there? Because I told you at the start that we look at what true love looks like in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And hopefully we've seen some of the aspects of this true love shown by Boaz to Ruth. But the truth is that even in the best relationships out there, we struggle to find this consistently. I think of my own marriage. I think of the type of husband I am. And, and look, by God's grace, my wife and I, we really love one another and uh, things are good. But I also know that I'm impatient. I'm, I'm grumpy. I'm often self-serving. I prioritize my own needs and my comfort before hers. I can be quick to see fault. I procrastinate when I should act. I'm not Boaz. Not really. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us are. Which means that whenever we try and find this kind of love in another person, we're doomed to failure. Whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're divorced or or, or anything else in between. If we are looking for the love that we truly need in these places, we're never going to find it. But Ruth 3 points us not only to what this love looks like, 
but also to where we can find it. A love that doesn't abuse us or reject us, but instead meets us in our most vulnerable moments and commits to care for us beyond our wildest dreams. Listen to these words from Ezekiel 16, verse 8. This is God speaking about how uh, he loves his people. And he says this, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Boaz points us to one far greater than himself. What we find in Ruth chapter 3 is a picture of how God relates to us in the Gospel. We are Ruth. We are vulnerable. We're messy. We're broken. We have nothing to offer of any value. We're fairly undesirable and unremarkable to most people. We're sinful. We've we screwed up. We, uh, we come with a whole bunch of baggage to God. And we come with no real hope that he would accept us and have us and welcome us. But yet, how does God treat us when we turn to him? He loves us. He spreads the corner of his garment over us. He covenants himself to us at great cost to himself. That's what's happening when Christ comes to the world. He comes to rescue his bride, his wife, the church. That's how the New Testament describes the church, as the bride of Christ. And it costs Jesus everything. He treats us with holiness. He desires us, even when we don't deserve it. And then he acts to ensure that we will belong to him. Jesus comes to the cross as our guardian redeemer. And the price that he pays to buy us back is the, is the cost of his own life. And he gives it willingly for us because he deeply and truly loves us. We are those, if we know and love the Lord Jesus today, who have a great husband who cares and protects for us. And if we're now his, he protects us with all the power of heaven, with a never-ending life, and he blesses us with every blessing in the spiritual places. It's not just a few pieces of barley that we carry away. It's every blessing that God has for us, poured out for us and given to us in Jesus. You see, true love is found in Jesus alone. So we can be like Ruth today and rest in him, trust him, wait for him. As Christians, we have found true love in Jesus. And so we can live in the light of that love, knowing that he is good to us and that his love will never 
end. In Jesus, we have found a love that we can truly trust. So, let me pray for us.